Welcome to Northern Nevada Green Living Podcast, where we support your quest for a happier, healthier, planet-friendly life that supports you, your family, and community. We share local information, resources, and support, and opportunities to volunteer for projects that help clean, protect, and repair the environment. This episode is a bonus episode from another show. It includes an interview of a Northern Nevada local who is taking green action through their vocation, volunteer work, or hobby. These stories are interesting and informational and are a great way to get to know our local community better. Today on our podcast, we're speaking with someone who, together with her partner, owns and successfully operates a small no-till farm and a year-round farmer's market with only three years of experience as farmers. We are talking with Casey Crispin. Casey Crispin and Zach Kennedy own and operate Prema Farm, a 1.5-acre no-till organic farm 12 miles north of Reno, Nevada. They began their farming adventure in 2017 as novices and have been on a pursuit to reconnect with the land and bring regenerative farming practices to the high desert ever since. Casey runs the year-round Riverside Farmer's Market they began in 2018, along with the marketing and business logistics of their farm while Zach focuses on supporting soil health and fertility to produce beautiful and nutrient-dense vegetables. When they're not tending to the demands of their hundreds of thousands of plants, they're caring for their two favorite seedlings, their two young daughters. Welcome, Casey. Thank you. We're so excited to speak with you and find out more about your path of green action that led you to regenerative organic farming. So what in your lives planted the seed of wanting to be a farmer? Yeah, you know, a lot of farmers uh, grew up on a farm, but neither Zach nor I did. We actually both come from cityscapes, Zach from Las Vegas and myself from the Los Angeles area. And so I think the contrast of our experience from being fairly removed from nature planted a seed within our hearts for something more connected and, you know, something more beautiful. And then and both of us had done some traveling before landing in the same spot and feeling a to farm. And uh, our travels brought us to rural areas and through really alternative farming operations. I had WUFT, which is acronym for Willing Workers on Organic Farms. And it's a it's an international network of organic farms that basically accept um, interns or volunteers and in trade for room and board. They volunteer and help out on their farm. And so it's a wonderful way to become kind of initiated into some of the more abstract, maybe romantic concepts of farming and get a real life experience of, you know, the labor involved and what it means to be on a more manually based farm, which most organic or most small organic farms are not very mechanized. And so yeah, so that was definitely a big part of shaping my desire. And I think Zach has described his time in India for about two years studying yoga. And I think it was not only working in more remote villages, of South India and seeing a lot of traditional farming techniques preserved there, but also just the idea of feeding people. He gets really passionate about feeding the community. And, you know, my orientation towards farming is very much about being on a farm and being connected to the plants. And while that's certainly a part of his passion, I think his focus actually is more on how much food can I produce so that I can feed the most people possible. So when you decided on farming, what helps you know how to proceed or where to buy land or what methods to use to plant, that type of thing. Yeah, 
it was definitely a slow and gradual percolation of information. My experience on farms certainly shaped the idea of the step-by-step approach. Of course, encountering different mentors on YouTube, and we, we like to joke that we learned to farm online, and that's largely true. We did use one book when we first started. Um, it's called The Market Gardener, and it's gained um, a following in recent years. Um, so this is back in 2016, we got that book, and that's by a farmer up in Canada who is a small scale. I think he's doing two acres up near Quebec. And so he innovated some really nice techniques that he inherited from some other pioneers in the organic farming movement. And his book was really instructive. We really felt like he his uh, recommendations kind of gave us a 10-year jump start on some of the different choices that we needed to make early on. And then it evolved from there, tested the soil to get an idea of its composition. You certainly don't want to get committed to a piece of land that has a really thick hard pan underneath the soil, which a lot of Nevada does. And then you just end up with poor drainage, a lot of clay in your soil, just difficult hurdles to start with um, when you're going to have so many hurdles, even with perfect soil. <laughs> so so I would say that it's hard to pinpoint one thing, but those factors certainly gave us, you know, a lot of the information that we needed. We, Zach and I really went full hog into it and left our full-time jobs and just, you know, really invested all of our time and energy and, and kind of risked things to make the farm happen that that knowledge acquisition process became much more efficient and focused. And then I should mention that when we began the farm, we began it with a group of friends. And so it was Zach, myself, two, and three actually of our very good friends. And all three or all five of us together kind of had our own collection of knowledge from various experiences. And so, you know, as a collective, we were able to kind of forge forth. What helps you decide to start using some no-till farming methods. I know there's a number of different organic methods, um, but maybe no-till is not quite as common. So tell us a little bit about how you kind of branched into the no-till aspect of it. Yeah, the deeper that we went into learning about organic farming and specifically small-scale market farming, which to be clear is really focused on producing a lot of vegetables on a small space small piece of land, uh, which really demands a lot from the soil. And so as we dug deeper into that, no pun intended, we realized, you know, that the the, the foundation of all of it is the fertility of your soil, the balance within your soil. And soil science is really just emerging. I mean, of course, it's been around for a long time, but there's so many revelations that have happened within the past five to 10 years that a lot of it feels nascent. And And it just continues to point to something that I think a lot of us already recognize intuitively, which is, you know, disturb nature less to restore more balance. And, you know, if if you want to work with the land and if you really want the land to work with you, then, you know, stop turning over the dirt every few months. And, And, you know, the science of that is much more based in the soil ecology, we're really just beginning on that journey. I mean, you know, we're three years in, we've adopted a few key regenerative practices, but we know that we have a long ways to go. And it'll be exciting to see how that evolves, not just on our farm, but collectively in the regenerative ag movement. That's great. So what has been one of your favorite parts about being on a farm kind of in, you know, wide open space? You know, there's so many answers, but I would say that the most, my most favorite, besides the view, I think that, that I can't deny that just being able to look, look out my window and um, yeah, just see a, a beautiful uninterrupted landscape of mountains and 
you know, we're in the high desert foothills of the Sierra Nevada. And so uh, we've got tree line and a lot of different um, flora here. So it's just a beautiful landscape, but I just, yeah, my favorite aspect is actually just being really far away or farther away from the intense EMF world of living in the city. You know, like when you are driving through the city and your phone picks up 25 different Wi-Fi networks and you've got, you know, phone lines and electric lines and all kinds of lines over your head all the time. Something that Zach and I both noticed when we started living out here was just the way that our dreams really came in full force. And it's been something we've heard from friends of ours who have camped out here. You know, we've had friends who've said they haven't remembered it in years. And then they've slept out here and they had two lucid dreams. I'm not an electromagnetic scientist or anything like that, <laughs> but it tends to be my, uh, my gut feeling and something that I appreciate about being out here. So what is it like raising a family on a farm? It's been fun. We actually, um, we managed our farm remotely for the first two years, which was challenging, but it was really our only option. And it meant for some really stressful discoveries when we would come back from a day or two away from the farm and an irrigation line broke <laughs> and uh, we had a puddle you know or a pond and so yeah we've moved we moved out here about five months ago and being out here is not only uh, much less stressful but having the kids out here makes for just a more seamless farming experience I feel less isolated as a mom with the babies and Zach feels less isolated as a farmer with all the duties on his shoulders, and we can share more of those. And then, of course, our kids get to play in just, you know, an acre and a half of ungated natural wonderland. They're always digging for worms, or yesterday we let out thousands of ladybugs, and so they are both covered in ladybugs <laughs> for most of the day. So yeah, really special memories I hope are being formed. Um, I'm certainly taking a lot of pictures in case they forget. But yeah, we think that, you know, giving them the opportunity to walk barefoot on clean dirt and then to connect with plants and, and nature the way that Zach or I ever did that young, we think it's irreplaceable. As a farm, and you have the farmer's market that you um, organize. So tell us what led you to the decision to start a farmer's market. Yeah, it was a pretty practical decision. We were entering our first winter where we knew we were going to produce. We didn't know how much we would produce. It was our you know, first winter trying to produce at 5,200 feet. So there's a number of threats to the viability of your crops at that at that point. And so we didn't want to do a CSA. We had just finished our first CSA that year. Um, we, did, we didn't want to do a winter CSA for fear that it would, you know, the, fail, the crops would fail and then we wouldn't be able to fulfill the pre-orders. So in that case, the market is really your best option, direct consumer sales. So, you know, our favorite way to sell is direct to consumer, not just because you get a better price point and it makes more sense for all of your farm finances, but because we actually get to develop a relationship with our customers. And for us, that's kind of the whole point. I mean, you can sell carrots that taste good and not have a story behind them. But for us, if we don't have a story behind our carrots, if people don't know why, for instance, they have more holes in their bok choy than they would ever find at their local supermarket, um, then they're not going to buy from us again. 
but it's important that they appreciate those holes the way that we appreciate those holes because they're there because we're not spraying even the quote unquote organic pesticides that are approved, you know, to deal with those beetles. And so, you know, if you don't mind a few holes in exchange for not having chemical in your vegetables like we do, then you'll, you know, you'll continue to come back to our booth, but you really won't know that unless you get a chance to hear us say it. You know, you might be a savvy consumer that goes on the website and does some sleuthing, but most people don't. And so for us, having direct sales to our customers um, is our way of ensuring our, uh, our longevity as a business with the model that we're using. So yeah, so we, we weren't going to do the CSA. And so we decided that the winter market needed to happen. And we inquired with um, one farm that's actually not from around here. He travels over the mountain pass throughout the winter to set up kind of like a, a farm booth in a private parking lot in town. Uh, but he didn't want another farm there, which is understandable. He didn't want the competition there. And so we decided, hey, it's time to start a market. <laughs> and, and, you know, there's no other year-round farmer's market in town. So it was kind of, you know, it was our opportunity to give it a, um, give it a try. And then if it worked out, we would have some momentum going into the peak season when there is you know, competition for farmers markets, people have more options of where they want to go. And the other thing is that one thing we had always kind of, even before we were farmers, lamented about is that in Reno, there was, there was never a farmers market that we encountered that had just a community charm to it. Something where people come and hang out and really get to connect and that there's just this, yeah, this communal connection happening. It was very much in and out. There's hardly ever any shade, very few kind of event accommodations, you know, like uh, live music or fresh food, prepared food, or a place to lounge. And some of my favorite farmer's markets that I've been to in the Pacific Northwest have had all those elements and just a really nice, charming environment. And so we were really after that uh, when we decided to start the market. So that, that was the secondary consideration after we decided that practically we needed a place to connect with customers and sell our winter vegetables. And then we decided it would be really fun to do it in a special way. So how did you initially get started? There wasn't one in existence. So did you kind of reach out to people? I mean, it is probably a pretty daunting task to get something like that started. Yeah, I guess we had the fortune of being well connected in the kind of food community of growers and makers and bakers. So that was not a daunting part. I think the most daunting for us, at least, I think it could be for sure if you're just starting from scratch. But you know, we had been involved with the local food co-op for several years at that point. So it tends to be a pretty tight-knit community just because there's so few. And, and then again, because there were no other farmers markets happening, but, you know, I mean, ranchers in particular, they have food usually all year round because most of it's frozen. And so there were a number of producers that definitely wanted to join. The only resistance that we got were people who were afraid of the weather which is warranted because we're an outdoor market year round. And we definitely had some like active blizzard days at our market, but we still had our customers show up, which was pretty amazing. <laughs> um, yeah. And so, yeah, I would say the most daunting part of getting started um, was more just the red tape. And that had a lot to do with the fact that we chose a public property for um, a public park rather for our market. And that comes with its own challenges with meeting all the requirements from the city, like your liability um, insurance has to be higher and your expenses are higher in general uh, than if you're on a private lot. And so just, just getting all 
all that capital together to like initiate the farmer's market was something that was, um, was tricky, but you know, it's, it's, it was easier for us because we were invested in it. I mean, we, you know, our investment into making the market happen was going to be paid back by having a route of sales throughout the winter. So it was kind of, it was a no brainer for us. And it, it was, they were surmountable. It didn't take us long. We, we got the market up and running in two weeks. So it was definitely not too challenging, but that probably had a lot to do with the connections that we had already made. So um, you are a certified organic farm. You're a small farm. It was that a difficult task to become certified. I know some farmers don't go through that process. What was that like for you? You know, we haven't shared that sentiment. We definitely have heard it a lot. You know, to be really transparent, it cost us $1,500 to become certified organic for an acre and a half. And, and that includes, you know, the fees associated with their certifying agent coming out and doing their inspection. And it's pretty thorough. We're, we're certified through CCOF now. And they're definitely really thorough in their evaluation of your operations. And they go into all your financial records. And you do have to keep track of everything, everything you buy, everything you put on the farm. But we really respect that. And as consumers who really try to only consume organic produce or try to minimize our consumption of anything with, you know, harmful chemicals on it. It's really, we really appreciate that there are agencies out there that go to that great length to help, you know, confirm that there's no hidden poison closet (laughs) as some farms have. Costs that people often reference of, you know, why they've avoided certification is more pertinent to very large farms large acreage, et cetera, because then your, your costs do go up. But the hope is, is that your sales, the, the ratio is, is worth it, right? Your ratio per acre, it makes it so that that percentage of cost for certification is similar to ours. So yeah, that, that's a farm. For us, it was not difficult and we would certainly do it again and, and we plan to. What were some of the challenges that you felt have been helpful for you to actually become better at what you're doing made you more successful so oh gosh I would say every single one from you know our greenhouse exploding at one point because we didn't construct it correctly in a 80 mile per hour gust of wind came and threw its top off to crops that are completely have been completely lost to aphids or planting too early because of an unexpected frost to water failures to yeah I mean, we've had pretty much everything fail at one point or another, every system. Zach has really become quite the MacGyver here because he's had to deal with so many of those failures and in the setting up of our farm, which was, you know, just a a bare piece of land with a well pump on it. So that was nice. That was already installed and drilled. But other than that, everything else has been built up from scratch. And that includes all of the more technical stuff, right? Like all of the wiring and all of the um, trenching and the plumbing and the irrigation manifolds and things that take a while to become proficient at, but all of it failed before we got it right. <laughs> and sometimes in really big ways. I mean, the company that we buy our greenhouses from, you know, they serve the entire nation. And ever, now they they literally include a full page color photograph of our mess of a greenhouse that exploded with like all of these notes and, you know, and blocks throughout the entire um, image of don't do this. This is what they did wrong here. This is what they did wrong here. And, you know, so we're grateful that our 
series of embarrassing mistakes are now serving a bunch of other farmers who are potentially building their greenhouse for the first time. But you can even see it. We have three greenhouses up. And when you visit our farm, it's very easy to tell like, okay, this is the first greenhouse you built. This is the second greenhouse that you built. And oh, that one's really nice. That's the last one that you built. And now we can build them in a week. But you know, it's so yeah, we've, we've gotten better at everything because of the failures that we had. So they're, they're just par, par for the course and they don't stop. I think that's one of the reasons why Zach in particular loves farming so much is he's a, he's a very competitive personality and he competes with himself. I mean, he likes to, he masters things quickly and then he, he likes challenges because of that. And, and farming is the first thing he's encountered where he really feels like he'll never master it and it'll always continue to throw him a new challenge. And, and you just, you have to have a temperament that's okay with failure and, and to kind of revel in it. And he certainly does. Do you feel comfortable with the size of your farm? Like it's just the right size for, for both of you to handle comfortably? Yeah, for now, absolutely. We don't have, we don't have big ambitions to, you know, have a giant farm ever. If we were ever to band our farm we would include an orchard. We would we would plant, you know, a few dozen trees and nothing over the top. We find that, you know, the bigger that you get, uh, the harder it is to maintain a lot of the regenerative practices. I, we farm very manual. I guess what would you say? Our most high-tech machine on the farm is powered by a hand drill. And so it's just, we, we employ five to six people per acre. And so, yeah, the larger your farm gets with that level of intensive farming, you can just imagine, you know, how much bigger your employee staff becomes, how much more management there is. And for us, that just spells like a lot of stress. So how many people are you employing at any given time? Well, it changes season or like depending on the year. So we have peak season, we'll have nine people on the farm, but we keep one to two employees full time, depending on what our operations look like. If we are doing microgreens and sprouting, we can do two full time year round. But yeah, so then in the peak season, when you have all of the outdoor crops going, it becomes a very busy acre and a half. <laughs> that's impressive. I mean, for an acre and a half and that employing that many people, that's quite a production. Yeah, from a produce amount standpoint, from like looking at it from a weight of produce standpoint, our farm, and this is last year, so that's our second full year of production. And our estimate is that we were producing at 80% last year of the capacity of the land in terms of just like filling the gaps between crops where our timing wasn't quite right with our seedlings and transplants, just tightening up our operations so that we reached that 100% full production capacity. But even at 80% last year, our output, our production was more than what you see at your average 10 acre farm in the United States. And so it's just a, it's a testament to a, the notion that organic farming can feed the world, you know, as a um, come back to the off-sighted idea that, you know, we need a GMO technology and the green revolution to be able to support the burgeoning population on the world. Um, and then it's also a testament to regenerative agricultural practices. We don't need chemical fertilizers. We don't need chemical pesticides, herbicides, or fungicides. We just need an intuitive approach to working with the land in a way that's not harming processes beneath our feet and instead supporting them. Excellent. 
So if your ideas and your experience and wisdom were all wrapped up into seeds of potential action that you could gift others that would like to consider being farmers as well, doing no-till, what would you like to pass on to them some words of wisdom? You know, <laughs> I think that if your heart is in the right place and you want to farm in a regenerative way, then that's the fuel. But the vehicle to getting you there is having a really practical approach to evaluating where you want to farm the community you want to feed, the demand that's already there. What we see a lot of new farmers doing is they see a lack of organic farming in their area, which unfortunately is really easy to find. Organic farming is still less than 1% of all farmland within the United States. So there's certainly food or organic food mm -hmm. desert throughout our country. But what that also means is that there's a lack of organic farming demand or demand rather for organic product. There's also still a really pervasive belief that organic is a marketing tactic that it doesn't actually reflect healthy farming practices. And so dismantling some of those perceptions is part of it, but that's a much, long, much longer term um, initiative. I think for new farmers that are really eager to get their hands in the dirt, it's important to really evaluate where you want to farm based on, are you going to be able to be successful? Because farming is a lot harder if you can't find a place to sell your vegetables. And it could really um, dishearten anyone with a serious passion and, and make them discouraged and stop, stop completely. So yeah, we, we often start there when we're talking to potential farmers and, and we bring a lot of new farmers onto our farm. Like we, we really enjoy incubating new farmers. We have two farmers this season who plan to leave next season and start a farm nearby. And yeah, and our advice is always always similar. Local channels of distribution, local dike. And a wonderful place to begin that conversation is just talking to produce buyers at some of your natural grocery stores or ideally a co-op if there is one in your area to find out what the local producer scene looks like and ideally finding gaps in those productions and starting there. So if there's not a lot of local produce in the shoulder seasons, you know, like March and October, then really focus on being that farm that supplies those gaps and, and just start out successful because it'll make your farming journey much more fun and it'll make it more efficient because you'll have the sales to support all of the investments that you have to make up front to be able to grow more food. So do you have any uh, books or websites or videos that like you, you'd like to recommend besides the one that you have already mentioned? Yeah, so we really like the work by Connor Crickmore from Never Sink Farm. He's from upstate New York. He tends to be one of our favorite farms. He's also one of the most productive market farms in the country. And then, you know, I would say the other thing you should pursue is finding a mentor that is farming successfully in your growing zone. And even better if you can find one in your specific microclimate. So Connor Crickmore, we enjoy because he's in our zone six, but he's in a different microclimate. He has much higher humidity than we do. And so we haven't actually found a mentor in our, with, with our unique conditions here. And as such, you know, we've been kind of forging the way with different challenges of growing in a, a super dry climate with unique pests that come with the desert terrain. But, um, but if you are in an area where you can find those things, that will also accelerate your, your farming journey just tremendously. You'll save a lot of time and money and heartache by finding someone who's already worked through the problems that you're about to encounter. Excellent. That's a great, great advice. So how would you like people to contact you? Yeah, you can reach out to us on our farm website and that's premafarm.com. So P-R-E-M-A 
farm.com and there's a contact form on the homepage and that tends to be the most efficient way to reach out to us. Okay, excellent. And do you have any last words of wisdom that you'd like to pass on? I think the only thing I'd like to pass on is that when farming organically or regeneratively or just in harmony with nature, just like planting a tree requires a sense of humility in that you likely won't live to see the full glory of that tree. Most trees don't reach their their epic, you know, until several decades later. And so farming, in our experience, is the same in that we keep our, our perspective on seven generations ahead of us in an effort to keep the grand scheme of nature's order in our hearts. And, and that approach has been working really well for us. It's not only kept us humble <laughs> so that we we kind of relinquish a lot of the results of our actions. And it makes us, um, I guess, a, a calmer pair of people while we farm. But I think that it also allows us to receive or recognize pertinent wisdom. Because these days, it's not hard to find information. What's hard is to discern the information that's actually going to apply. It's actually going to work with the land. And in our experience, you have to be in the right frame of mind to be able to discern. Thank you for listening to Northern Nevada Green Living Podcast. We encourage you to subscribe to this show so we can send you monthly episodes and keep you up to date on opportunities for eco-friendly living in Northern Nevada. For now, please take good care of you and yours, stay well, and help us all make this a kinder, healthier, and greener community for all.